As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany and the, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which, one which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied in the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now this traditional Palm Sunday reading here from Mark's Gospel is something that gives us some insight into worship and discipleship that I think are particularly informative. And this is helpful because we often get confused, agitated at times, sideways perhaps, when it comes to how to properly worship within the church. Consider the church, uh, I'm sure this has never happened for Desert Springs, but consider the church that had a man who who couldn't sing but wanted to be in the choir. Others tried to help him find other places in ministry that were maybe a little bit more suitable to him, but he insisted on being in the choir. The choir director became so desperate that he went to the pastor. He said, Pastor, you have to do something with Brother Jones. If you can't persuade him to leave the choir, then then I'm going to quit, and I know that most of the choir will quit too. Help us. So the pastor went to Brother Jones and suggested that he leave the choir. Well, why should I leave? Brother Jones asked. Well, several people have told me that you, you can't sing, the pastor responded. Well, that's nothing, Brother Jones said. Several dozen have told me you can't preach and you're still here. <laughs> Ouch. Well, uh, hopefully none of you think that that story is about me. And, uh, and though it does make us chuckle and po- pro- possibly groan, the joke is on us if we don't understand what is important to God when it comes to worship. And we're going to work our way through this text And I've got three points that I'd like to make. Two that deal specifically with worship and one more generally on discipleship. But before we get into that, let's pray. Will you join your hearts with me? Holy One, our strength in suffering and our hope for salvation, lift up your word of life and pour out your spirit of grace so that we may follow faithfully on the way to the cross through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the first point is uh, that I glean from this passage, if we're just kind of working our way through from verse 1 through 11, is 
is about what worship is. All right, so kind of on the positive side. And worship is listening to and following the direction of Jesus. We get that in the first six verses in this passage. Listening, obedience in word and deed, this is worship. Submitting self to Jesus' direction. It, now, it can involve prayer and preaching and music and singing and even dance. But if it isn't grounded in listening to and obedience after hearing what you've heard, then, well, then it just isn't worship. Consider this information from the Evangelical Covenant Church's uh, history, which is available on the main website. This is a quote right off of it. It says, the Evangelical Covenant Church has its roots in historical Christianity as it emerged in the Protestant Reformation. In the biblical instruction of the Lutheran State Church of Sweden and in the great spiritual awakenings of the 19th century. The Covenant Church adheres to the affirmation of the Protestant Reformation regarding the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, as the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. It has traditionally valued the historic confessions of the Christian Church, in particular the Apostles' Creed, while at the same time it has emphasized the sovereignty of the word over creedal interpretations. So that's why we and, and others of the Reformed tradition, or that come out of that larger Reformed tradition, emphasize reading and expository preaching from the Bible. The word of God is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The sovereignty of the word. Those were phrases that came right out of that passage. It's a foundational part of who we are. Now, we need to be attentive to God's word and God's direction, and, and therefore preparing a sermon for worship is really a humbling experience. And I know some of you have, have done this as well, especially during the time when you were without a regular preacher. I feel like when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm, I'm first preaching to myself and and then to you as part of our ongoing conversation with God about his direction for all of us. And I hope that you're listening carefully and with discernment because the Holy Spirit is the one that is speaking to each of us today. I rest in that knowledge and I depend on it. Certainly pastors are fallible people and it is through all of us listening to God's word and heeding it that we avoid the pitfalls that come when we merely depend on our own understanding. Consider the young man who was preaching his first sermon and announced his text in Revelation 22 and read, Behold, I come quickly. And at that point, his mind went blank. He, he couldn't think of anything else to say. All his preparation from the week, psh, right out the window. Then he remembered being told that if this happens to you, just repeat your text. So he said again, Behold, I come quickly. But it didn't work. He still couldn't remember what to say next. So frustrated, he decided to raise his voice and say it again. And just as he did, he tripped and he fell into the lap of a little old lady that was sitting in the front row. And very embarrassed, he told the lady how sorry he was. And she said, don't feel bad. You warned me three times you were coming, and I didn't get out of the way. <laughs> he 
Yes, worship is about listening to and following the direction of Jesus. As James tells us in his letter, in the first chapter, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. God's word to us is like the voice of Jesus in this passage. We get an example of what true worship is in these first six verses, but we, we often skip over it, right? Because what's the exciting part about Palm Sunday? It's the parade. It's the waving of the palm fronds. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the shouting. It's the excitement. But in those first six verses, we get an example of what true worship is, not the exuberance of the crowd at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but at the paragraph that precedes it. We read there, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, or a donkey which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, well, why are you doing this? Which is, would be a normal thing to do if somebody just walked up and untied your animal. Well, if anybody asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway, and as they untied it, some people, indeed, standing there, asked, well, what are you do uh, doing untying the colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Well, isn't that just like God? And just like us, really, we're, we're focused over here, right? At the, at the waving palm fronds and the excitement. And God is over here, moving quietly and purposefully, prayerfully. Think about it. Now, Mark... Mark has not been overly eloquent or verbose in his expenditure of words in telling the story of Jesus. Remember when we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, and we, we kind of took different weeks and looked at chunks of it and, and came back a couple times because it, it just goes through a big part of Jesus' early ministry in seven short verses. In those seven short verses, we got the baptism of Jesus by John, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, John's arrest, Jesus' inauguration of his public ministry in Galilee, and Jesus' first recorded sermon in seven verses. And here, in the passage we have today, we have seven verses referring to the ancient equivalent of calling a cab or an Uber. So... This is the type of stuff that, like if we were in Hollywood and we were looking at a, a script, that the screenwriters would, would have lost in the final editing. It wouldn't have made the final film. It's filler or fluff. Or is it? I believe that when God is apparently quiet or not really doing anything spectacular, when we're just sort of grinding away at the mundane and apparently trivial, that's when we're really at worship. You see, getting caught up in an emotional wave, it's awesome. And it's absolutely necessary for us to have those moments. Jesus and his closest disciples had one of those moments recently. 
Uh, we looked at it a few weeks ago on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where they get a glimpse into eternity. The, the curtain kind of rolls back, and they see Jesus, and he's there with Moses and Elijah. It's an awesome moment of revelation and profound impact. But that's not where our willingness to worship God is truly tested. It's not in those moments. It's when we're simply asked to listen, trust, and obey. When we can't depend on the stirring up of emotion to signal that God is present. We cannot rely on the manufacturing of conditions, the securing of a particular setting, or the thrill of participating in top-notch music and choreographed movements on stage to tell us that God is present and he's being honored in our midst. God's people have proven that at the foot of his mountain, Mount Sinai, where the law is delivered and there's cloud and thundering sound and the very finger of God writes out the Ten Commandments on on the tablets, that we can be in the very presence of God and find the time to fashion a golden calf or some other idol. Or consider Elijah, the fiery prophet of God. He's a part of amazing signs from God and then finds himself cowering on a mountainside looking for God in stormy winds and fire and earthquake. But God wasn't in any of that, was he, in that story? He was in that still, small voice, a whisper. Consider this. After attending church one Sunday, a little boy was was asked to say his prayers by his father as he tucked him in that night. The little boy prayed, Dear God, we had a good time at church today, but I wish you had been there. Jesus, forgive us if we came to do anything here today but listen to you with the desire to obey and be changed. Now please don't misconstrue my logic here. It's, it's not that enthusiasm and excitement present in a worshiping environment means that God isn't present. Far from it. I just gave you the example of the transfiguration. God was obviously present in that moment. Mountaintop experiences are 100% valid when God is present. I just want to caution us to, not all, uh, to make the assumption that mountaintops are all the same. Sometimes it's just about listening, obeying, and waiting on God. Not all mountaintops are the same. Did you notice something? My mountaintop experience reference, cautioning us from equating mountaintop experience with God with amazing, life-changing, emotional experience with God. Where does verses 1 through 7 take place? That's right. It's on a mountaintop. Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Lord, we, we know what worshiping you is most of the time. It's, it's listening to you and following your direction. So if that's my first point, if that's what worship is, you probably guess what the second point is. It's what worship isn't to be confused with. That excitement or mere enthusiasm. We see in verses 7 through 10. I made most of the significant arguments along these lines as we explore what worship is. 
In the last point, so it simply won't do to present the same case, but now from the negative after making it in the affirmative. I have too much respect for your time, and I don't, I don't want to bore you. We bore someone when we belabor a point. After all, in various surveys, when people are asked why they don't go to church, they often reply that church is just too boring. Revivalist and author Vance Havner used to say that church, well, church often starts at 11 o'clock 11 sharp and ends at 12 o'clock dull. We do well to have a little bit more enthusiasm, a little bit more palm frond waving, if you will, in our corporate worship. Movement, sure, shouting, all right, I'm okay with that. I mean, I've done most of the last decade of ministry for kids that do all sorts of things while you're talking to them about Jesus. So your, your shouting out on occasion is not going to startle me. So movement, shouting, song, all these things could potentially keep us sharp and avoid being dull. But it, it wasn't just the sound and the motion that made Palm Sunday exciting. It was the tension in the air, the expectation, the inherent conflict between competing systems and worldviews. The worship that spontaneously broke out on Palm Sunday was threatening. It was threatening to both the Jewish leaders and the Romans. But, but do we really understand why? I mean, we think of it from our perspective as something that was wonderful that happened for Jesus and to recognize him as who he truly was. Jerusalem, uh, a city at that time of, I, I've read of about 80,000 in regular population, but at the time of the Passover would swell to well over a million people from all over. It was a time of anticipation, expectation, and a focus on God's deliverance of his people. That's what Passover is all about. Surely if God crushed Pharaoh and his army, he could crush Caesar. There was an expectation in the air. Now maybe despite all of Jesus' previous sermons on loving your neighbor, turning the other cheek, he was about to help the Jewish people rise up and put the Romans in their place. Maybe Jesus came to shed a little Roman blood for the good of God's kingdom. You know, the, the trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. Like, we get excited about those images too, right? God, crush your enemies and make us victorious because we're on your side. Well, Jesus would be shedding some blood in Jerusalem, as we know, but it would be his. It would be the precious blood of the lamb, shed as a sacrifice for, for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of the whole world. A perfect once-for-all sacrifice that would make peace with God. Jesus was going to show what worship was, not by getting, getting caught up in the emotion of Palm Sunday, but instead keeping his eyes focused forward on the calling that he had, the cup that he must bear, not for his own sake, but for yours and mine. And after all, this is the last point that I want to make. The first two are about worship. This last one's about discipleship. Jesus couldn't ride that donkey or that colt all the way to the cross. 
You can't take a donkey to the cross. You can ride a donkey in a parade that people throw for you, but you must walk with the cross on the path that God has for you. You're going to fall down. You're going to stumble. You're going to have to drag that cross to Calvary's Hill, to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. It's not pretty. It's an ugly slog. It's a march through a gauntlet of ridicule and misunderstanding from others. Is that what we want? No. No, right? Is that what you want? Is that, I, I don't want that. We want victories and celebrations, recognition and adulation. Salvation, though, doesn't come through the excitement and enthusiasm from what gets the world on its feet and cheering for you. Jesus was wise enough to realize that if the world is on its feet and cheering for you, you're probably not going the right direction. Salvation comes in humility, in putting to death the self and seeking God first. It's, it's the postponement of a lot of gratification and seeking what is good rather than, than what just simply feels good. I'm sure it felt good to Jesus to be part of that Palm Sunday parade. But he didn't mistake that moment for God's mission for him. So the parade dies down. The procession ends. The excitement fades. And Jesus takes the donkey back to its owner, just as he said he would. He keeps his promise in this just as he keeps his promise in taking our sin and our shame upon himself and exchanging it for his righteousness. We're near the end of our Lenten journey. The somber mood of the days behind will will give way to the joys of the days ahead. But let's not forget the lessons that we've learned and the truths that we've explored together. For instance, you can't take a donkey to the cross. Maybe between now and Friday, we each have a little soul-searching that we can do to see what needs to be left behind in our lives, something that we simply can't take to the cross. Maybe it's something physical, but, but consider also the emotional, relational, or spiritual baggage that you may have. It's a true act of worship to listen to the voice of Jesus, to heed the prompting of the Spirit, and then obey Let's close our time together in prayer as we consider this together. Jesus, we lay our jackets across the dirty lane and you cross before us. We lift our voices to scream unashamed and fill your ears with our support of you. We do it with the child's trust that that change and goodness can come. But as your waving hand shrinks in the distance, as your donkey's flanks fade from view, we wonder, is this display with our cloaks just the dead chivalry of a broken bygone age? Are the silly shrieks a passing enthusiasm also soon to fade from view? Perhaps. But there is a deeper chivalry a more faithful passion, 
within you, a chivalry that lays its life down into dust for friend and foe alike. A heart that walks hand in hand with God through the valley of the shadow. Even as we celebrate in the days ahead, upon such things we meditate, we seek to listen and obey. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.